Good evening, brothers and sisters. Good to see you tonight as we remember the death of our Lord. I have a favorite childhood memory when I was a boy. I don't know if they still do this. Sean, you might know that uh, they used to do a passion play in Cambridge, Ohio. Do they? I don't know if they still do that or not. I, it's probably, it's probably. yeah, I'm going back a ways. There's <laughs> a lot of things they don't do anymore, you know. Um, but when I was a little boy, my parents took me uh, to Cambridge, Ohio, and uh, I used kind of sat out outside, and there was a passion play that was done. The, the whole scene of the crucifixion was reenacted, and I remember as a little boy just being so impacted by that. In fact, I came home, I was all fired up in the neighborhood, and I gathered all my friends, said, we're going to have a passion play, and I got some of my dad's two-by-fours, and... I made a cross, and well, you know how that goes. It didn't really work out, but um, it impacted my life, and it continues to impact my life. And every year when we get to this day, it still impacts my life. I still feel the weight of the events. I just want to talk to you briefly on this Good Friday about a week like no other. We're going to just talk about this whole week that had taken place and, and some of the things that are taking place. Of course, today we're remembering that Jesus did walk his way along what was called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, and bearing his own cross. He walked through that narrow street outside the street, uh, city of Jerusalem out to a place called Golgotha, and there he was crucified. The one who had never sinned, no deceit was ever in his mouth. But they crucified him between two criminals. People in his day, as in our own day, have different ideas about what that all meant. Those present at Jesus' crucifixion, most of them had drawn the conclusion that he was a false messiah, just another false messiah. And uh, they really just mocked him. They taunted him. Uh, in the ancient days, they would wag their heads as a sign of derision. And as he's hanging on the cross, can you imagine hanging on the cross and people saying, if you are the son of God, come down. We'll believe in you. Or, oh, you saved others. Now you can't even save yourself. Most of his own disciples abandoned him. To their credit, uh, most of the people present with Jesus were the women, the women who supported him. His mother was there. Only John, uh, one of the 12, was there at the scene. And, you know, even today, Jesus' death on the cross seems to have little relevance to most people. It's a religious thing. A lot of religious people kind of do their thing on Good Friday and Easter. Others are redefining what the meaning of the cross is, and there's all kind of craziness out there. So what's the truth, though, about Jesus? What's going on throughout this week? Uh, what, why is it a week like none other? I want to just briefly, I'm not going to talk a long time tonight, but I, I hope we can draw our hearts into the story that's unfolding in this week like no other week. Totally a holy week, a week set apart. Well, beginning with Palm Sunday, the, the Bible describes all the events of this week are actually unfolding as a fulfillment of a sovereign plan of God from eternity past. <laughs> Let that sink in. 
The Bible says that Jesus is, quote, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, when God created the world, he had already decreed from eternity past that Jesus would come and he would be the lamb of God, lamb of God, the sacrifice from God who would take away the sins of the world. And so this week, I want you to remember God is sovereignly working out his plan. And I want you to remember something else, too, that Jesus had, there was no doubt that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him in this week. Just before they came to Jerusalem, Mark tells us this. Jesus said this to his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. <laughs> but after three days, he will rise. And it tells me Jesus is not a helpless victim. He's not a victim of the Romans. He's not a victim of the Jewish authorities. He's not a victim of a vindictive father inflicting abuse on his son. He's not a victim at all. He's a willing participant. He's sovereign over these events. He said, no one takes my life from me. No one. I lay it down of my own accord. You may know some of the political climate and what was going on at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Rome, about 63 BC, had come in and conquered Jerusalem, putting an end to the independent Jewish state at that time. They're kind of self-rule. There's been many uh, oppressors over the years, but Rome conquered. The Jewish people hated the fact that they were under this oppressive military regime, and they longed, they yearned, for the promised Messiah who would come and deliver them from this oppression and set up his Davidic rule on earth. That's what they were longing for in the times of Jesus. And here's one of the prophecies they held on to. You're very familiar with this from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now, we're very familiar with that, but do you know the next verse of the prophecy? It goes on to say this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow I shall, shall be cut off, and he, Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, the prophecy not only says your king will come to you humbly on, on a donkey, but he's going he's gonna to take away the need for any of the traditional uh, instruments of war. You won't need chariots. You won't need a war host. You won't need battle bows because the Messiah is going to supernaturally reign over the nations. He's going to bring peace to the nations, okay? So when the people saw Jesus approaching on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey, they hailed him as the promised Messiah. That's what Sean was saying. They, they hailed him as the Messiah, but in their mind, they're thinking, this is the King Messiah coming. But the Old Testament prophecies also speak of a Messiah as the suffering servant. As Sean read words out of Isaiah 53, 
the one who would be rejected by his people and would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. You see, what was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament was how Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant Messiah and Zechariah's prophecy of the reigning king Messiah could be fulfilled. How are they both going to be fulfilled? Well, namely, in the first and second comings of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But that wasn't clear back then. But God has sovereignly orchestrated all of this. He knows that when the crowds realize that Jesus hasn't come to deliver them from Rome, that they're going to turn on him. You know, sometimes we have to live with the tension of not understanding everything fully. You know that? You know, we, we don't understand everything. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He often does things in ways different than the way we think they're going to be done. And I think there's a lesson there for us. But let's review the week real quickly. So on Sunday, uh, the crowds hailed him. All the eyes were on him. The multitudes began praising him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark's account adds that they also said, Hosanna, blessed is the coming deep, uh, kingdom of our father David. Sounds like the reigning king Messiah they're hailing. Not the suffering servant Messiah, right? You with me? Jesus is on a collision course with the expectations of the people, and I believe it didn't take long for them to be disappointed. He enters the city. What's the first thing he does? Mark tells us. He says, and he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the 12. He leaves the city, goes back up the Mount of Olives and leaves. You want to talk about an (laughs) anticlimax? I mean, the crowd is hailing him, the Messiah, our deliverer. And he comes in, he comes in the temple. I bet the people were waiting for some word. What are you going to do? How's this going to work? Where are we going to go? How are you going to take, get rid of the, how's this going to work? And he looks around and he walks out. And he leaves the city. I think from the very moment of the sundown of Sunday came, there was already seeds of disappointment and disillusionment among people. So Monday, well, maybe Monday's a new day. Let's see what happens. So he re-enters the city. I'm not going to share everything that happens every day, but here's a highlight. And rather than speak against the Romans, he cleansed the temple of the money changers. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, wait a minute. You're talking to us about, I know this is a little untidy. We've got some money things going on here. But the Romans, you're not going to say anything about the Romans? And uh, the next day, Tuesday, he teaches all day. But again, when the issue of the, in fact, the people bring it up, they they said, this guy's never going to talk about the Romans. So they brought it up. Should we pay taxes to the Romans? And Jesus said, you know, show me the coin. You used to pay the tax. Whose likeness and image? And of course, you know the story. And he says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
Instead of his intention, proclaiming his intention to deliver the people from Rome, Jesus pronounced seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. He left Wednesday. He didn't even come into the city. By the time Wednesday's here, the Bible says that Judas Iscariot uh, decided to betray Jesus. Satan entered him. And so uh, Mark 14 says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Look at, look at how things are just falling apart. Now Judas is even giving up, just saying, this, this isn't, he's not the Messiah. He's been with them all this time. And he was going to betray him. And when the religious leaders heard of it, they were glad. They promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So that brings us to Thursday. Thursday, Jesus has an intimate Passover meal with his disciples. And as they are arguing about who's the greatest, he gets up and gets a bowl of water, a towel, starts moving from disciple to disciple and washing their dirty feet. A new commandment, he says, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The night before he died, he washed the disciples' feet and he says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. A commandment, church. And he even said so far as, this is the way that people are going to know you're my followers if you love one another. We have to love one another. It's not an option. We need to love one another. While they're remembering God's deliverance, from Egypt and the slavery there, Jesus brings new meaning to some of the elements. He takes bread, and in just a moment, we're going to do the same. And this bread rep represents or is a symbol of his soon-to-be-broken body, and he passes a cup of wine that represents his soon-to-be-shed blood for them. And he says, God is establishing a new covenant in his blood. And it is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices and it's through his blood now that we're going to be saved when we place faith in that. And so later that evening, Judas leads the chief priests and the temple guards to the Garden of Gethsemane. He betrays Jesus with a kiss and as he's arrested, his disciples flee. So I want you to understand that Jesus did not sleep he was awake all day Thursday. He's arrested late on Thursday evening. And then we head into Friday early morning. He's never sleeping all night, friends. He's been up all that time. In the early morning hours, he will face three religious trials. And uh, the result of those trials ending in the, as dawn breaks uh, with the Sanhedrin, the, reigning, uh, the ruling body of the Jewish people, they find him guilty of blasphemy. This man claims to be the son of God. And they hurry him off to Pilate, the Roman procurator. He faces three more trials before Pilate, then he's taken to Herod, and then he comes back before Pilate. You know the story. All of this taking place early in the morning. Pilate can't find any reason to put Jesus to death. 
And uh, he, he, he just says to the people, who do you want me to release? He offers to release either Jesus or Barabbas, an insurrectionist. And by now, the popular opinion against Jesus has turned from adulation on Palm Sunday to disillusionment, even hostility. He appears to be a false messiah, and so they cry out for Barabbas. At least Barabbas fought the oppressive Romans. At least he did something. So Pilate orders Jesus to be crucified. He's been flogged. And then he's mocked. The Roman soldiers come in and they put a purple robe over him. A sign of royalty. And stick a crown of thorns on his head, no doubt piercing his skin and his blood runs down, they mock him, they salute him. Hail, oh hail, king of the Jews. Oh, there's laughter. They kneel down in front of him. I could hear the, the guards saying, oh, Tiberius is going to be really worried with this king. Wow, look at this king. Oh, hail, Messiah. Hail, king of the Jews. And when they'd had their fill, they started to strike him repeatedly on the head. That's part of the story. They just started hitting him. They spit on him. And finally, they strip him of that robe and they lead him out to crucify him around 9 a.m. Mark 15 just says the simple words. They led him out to crucify him and he walked down that Via Dolorosa to the hill called Calvary and he willingly offers his sinless life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He took our place. He died to pay the price that our sins paid and to satisfy the justice of God. See, God is just. He is just. He's holy. He must punish sin but he's merciful. He wants to show us grace. So how does he solve that dilemma? He, he must punish us because of our sins. He, it, justice demands it, but he doesn't want to punish us for our sins because he loves us. He wants to show us mercy. But how can he be just and still pardon us? He solves that in the person of his own son who bears our sins, and so his justice is poured out on his son. So therefore, God can be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. At noon, an eerie darkness comes over the whole land. Can you imagine? Noon, it just starts getting black. Around three o'clock, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I often wanted to wonder what some of the religious leaders who no doubt were there did not believe in Jesus, what they were thinking at that point. They, they, they thought him a false messiah, and I, they had to think this. Even on the cross, he's going to quote scripture? Even hanging on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as he hangs there and bears our sin, he feels the full weight 
of the judgment of separation that would have been yours and mine to bear. There's other things, obviously, that he said, but finally he says, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. His lifeless body hung on the tree. A soldier thrusts his spear into Jesus' side, but it only confirms that he's already dead. His mother weeps. As John holds on to her and gives her strength, his body is removed from the cross and placed in the donated tomb. Well, friends, that's what happened. It can be analyzed. It can be thought through by theologians. There can be theological terms ascribed to it. It's right. It, it's understandable. What happened is totally clear. But don't miss why it happened. How do you answer the question, why? Why in the world would he do that? There's only one answer for it. Love. Love. I don't know how it makes you feel to know that he loved you before he even created the world. That he cared for you, knew your name. I don't know, the Bible does not say that there's an old song that says, when he was on the cross, we were on his mind. It's a nice thought. I, I don't know, but somehow, it, there's mystery in all this too, but somehow, I just know he knew us. He knew us. He knew, he sees us. He, he's been, from eternity past, he knows each one of us. And he hung there for us so that we could be saved. Well, you and I know how this week's going to end. <laughs> they didn't have the ending of the story back then. We know that a glorious resurrection and a vindication of the person and work of Jesus is coming. Hope will spring forth out of despair. Joy will displace sorrow. Strength will rise from the grip of fear. But tonight we survey the wondrous cross on which our Prince of Glory died. You know that when Paul wanted to uh, communicate to people what the heart of Christianity was all about, uh, he chose to communicate it this way. I'm sorry I didn't put this on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is of first importance. This, there's nothing more important in the church, in church life, in faith, in Christianity, this is first. These things are first. He says, I give to you what I also received. Uh, some uh, people think that this was a creed in the ancient church. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. But they had this creed that they would pass. Paul says, I'm passing this on to you. He's writing to the Corinthians. Uh, I don't have the year he wrote this. 50-ish, uh, 80, 50. I mean, Sean will correct me. But... What I'm saying is it's about 20 years removed, 40 years, 30 years removed from the crucifixion itself, and he said he received it. He'd gotten it previously. 
So that pushes it even earlier to the cross and the resurrection. So within a few years, perhaps, after the cross, Christians are starting to recite this as a creed. And it is this. I I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. And he goes on to say other appearances as well. That's what's most important. In other words, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian, You can't be a Christian and not believe this, okay? Christ died for our sins. That's a sacrificial atoning work of Christ. He took our place. He was our substitute. He did it willingly. He wanted to do it because he loved us. And it was predicted in the scriptures. It's talked about in Isaiah 53, 700 years before it happened, and other places as well. He was buried, that proved that he was dead, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared. Friends, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared. That is the most important foundation of Christianity. Without it, you don't have Christianity. I hope, and I know for many of you, I'm sorry, did I get it? Am I sounding like harsh or something? I'm not trying to be harsh. It, it's passion. I just, <laughs> it, it's, it's just, doesn't it grip your heart? Doesn't it grip your heart what he did? I, I know it resonates in your heart. And the words we sang earlier will hopefully just continue to drive us to worship. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, all these other pursuits and worthless things that we pursue. Oh God, I sacrifice them to his blood and what he did. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Has there any, ever been anything like this? Or thorns composed so rich a crown? And the last verse, were the whole realm of nature mine. If I owned everything, that still wouldn't be enough to give it to back to him. I, I just there's no payment. That would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, de- demands my soul, my life, my all. For those of you who have received Jesus and trust in him, uh, rejoice in this tonight. And if you haven't ever thought about Christ or thought about putting your trust in him, I can say with certainty that his arms are open wide. I know this. And he waits for you to come. His invitation still remains. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of that person will flow rivers of living water. I'll do something in your heart. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse your heart. I'll give you a new life. Reach out to him tonight. Just reach out to him and say, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me of my sins. 
Well, it was a week like none other. And as we remember him, and Sean's going to come in just a moment, let's remember him. Let's honor him. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to say thank you. Thank you seems such a small thing to be able to even say tonight. But um, we really love you. We really love you. There's no one like you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for fulfilling the just demand that sin be uh, punished. Thank you for taking that upon yourself so that we would not have to pay that price. We believe in you. We love you. We remember you. We thank you. And we rejoice that we're your people. Thank you for tonight and the opportunity to honor you in this place. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.